Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we pick up with part two of our interview with Jonathan and Amanda Texera of Wallet Win, followed by part two of Kara's and my discussion of Before Midnight. If you missed part one of either of those segments, be sure to check out episode 96. So on that note, but in a more time-sensitive context, when somebody is either leading up to getting engaged or is currently engaged to get married, what are the best financial conversations to have in those settings? We actually just gave a chat about this recently. Yes. I think there was a courtship summit. And so this is top of mind for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, of how to help couples move financially closer together as they would anything. As you're discerning and uniting your lives, there's a process involved. You know, if you're on your second date and somebody spills out all their financial mess, (laughs) you know, how much is in their bank account, all the things and demands the same information from you, run. (laughs) Because that's just, it's too much too soon. And so we do recommend, you know, for couples that are dating, it's really a time more to be handling your money separately, certainly. You know, you should be budgeting your own money. One of your budget categories for each of you might be dating and, you know, setting aside money every month to actually go out and, and see each other in different contexts and to continue getting to know each other and discerning. But you're separately managing your money completely. But it's time to have those conversations like we had mentioned earlier about maybe your your past of growing up. How was money talked about or viewed? You know, maybe you have some conversations about goals that you might be working on yourself, what kind of organizations you support by your giving. They're kind of still up here. You know, they're higher level 30,000 foot view. Maybe some general like, yeah, I've got some student loans or I am saving for my next vehicle. And it can stay there. It's not the time to necessarily reveal a ton of details. And I would say as the relationship progresses, you can kind of discern when that transition comes. Usually it's close to engagement, if not kind of after you've just gotten engaged. Now you can really begin sharing some of those details. And then from that, you're still operating in your own separate bank accounts and your own budgets. But now you have a shared goal. You're saving for your wedding together. And then you're probably identifying the first two to three goals that you're going to have as a married couple. And so maybe this is the time when you do tally up how much debt is owed between you two. And now you can figure out a game plan for after we get married, we're going to really go after that together as a team. And okay, we want to cash flow the wedding. And so we're both going to be saving for that and and contributing to the fund every single month. So you're kind of, it's like an onboarding ramp, right? It's the You're just slowly kind of inching together. And then after you get married is really the time for, you know, the joint accounts and total clarity. And now your money is my money. Your debt is my debt. All the things. It's not viewed as yours and mine anymore. It's just ours together. That engagement window is when you're really emotionally preparing to kind of tackle that after you get married. Is there any conversation that you've heard of people not having before marriage that really stuck out to you as kind of a horror story example? Like, how could you not talk about this financial thing before you got married? I mean, yes. We have heard from couples that, I mean, they literally didn't know, one, they didn't even know how much debt they had as an individual. 
because it's a lot easier to bury your head in the sand and to just put those student payments on Mm. auto pay and to not really look too closely because it hurts. Then from that space, if couples then get married, sometimes they don't really know what kind of debt the other person had at all. And we found ourselves in that situation. I knew vaguely, you know, Jonathan had some student loans. I knew that vaguely I had a little bit of student loans left, but I don't think you had even known how much you had until we added it up after we got home. Yeah, I probably wasn't carrying the amount around in my in my mind or anything. Yeah, so it's just, you know, the surprise debt, I think is probably one of the biggest. And then another tension point would be one spouse maybe who uses credit cards and pays just the minimums and just relies on them to kind of live the lifestyle they want, even if they don't have the money all the time, versus a spouse who hates credit cards, never uses them. That is a is a pretty big clash point. And so especially when one spouse is maybe carrying a secret credit card, it has happened. We've We've met couples that have found themselves in that situation. And, you know, even though it's not stealing money necessarily from from the other person, it's not the same as, you know, physically cheating with somebody. It's definitely financial infidelity. And I'd say the other thing is to, probably in that engagement window, you just need to talk about how we're going to handle money as a couple. One of you might be like a little hesitant to have joint accounts, to just have one pool of money for our family. Maybe because your parents always had separate or whatever it was, but you need to have joint accounts. It's, I mean, it's not a moral issue, but boy, is it so much easier. And it just really shows the both of you, like, we are in this together. We are a team. Everything we have, we are. We have it together. Mm-hmm. And so if there are any bumps in that road, getting to that point, let's get over those bumps as we're getting ready for marriage instead of having to duke that out once we're already together. Yep. And I would say modern feminist money wisdom is always having your own account, a separate account, never having. I just heard on Instagram yesterday, some somebody did a reel and it was like, I would never have a joint account. I'm not going to have somebody tell me that I can't go buy a skirt. I'm never going to have somebody tell me that I can't go out and get a coffee. And it's just really interesting to hear that perspective because that's not really the view of, you know, a Catholic marriage. We're not in a relationship where somebody is the parent and the other person is the child. And so that mentality of I've got to keep a little bit of my own over here on the side, it's very much the culture's reflection of marriage of this could break down at any point and I got to keep myself safe versus sacramental marriage is total self-gift, total vulnerability. Just like Jesus on the cross, he wasn't reserving anything. He wasn't holding anything back in case he needed an escape plan. You are vulnerable, and that's kind of the point. And we're total self-gift to one another in all ways, including our finances, and that none of us has a secret bailout plan on the side. It's interesting. We started talking about money, and yet we somehow ended up talking about marital fidelity and living the love of Christ rooted in the Paschal mystery. (laughs) which I don't think a lot of people when they maybe come to you looking to, you know, try and see how they can get out of debt. I don't know if they expect the conversation to go in that direction. But it's funny that it, you know, it can tend to, which, you know, it kind of brings me to the next thought about how we incorporate money or how more often than not, we exclude the financial side of our lives from the rest of our life in Christ as if like it's this little bubble that we've sequestered off 
you know, even if we're really devout Catholics, even then it might still be like a separate concern that we haven't integrated into our whole spiritual life. It makes a huge difference. I grew up Catholic. I went to mass every Sunday. I was going to CCD or youth group or whatever it was. But my faith, my life was not fully integrated. What I said on Sunday, at times who knew how much I believed it, but even when I was like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, this is true. I, I didn't allow it to influence the way I live my life all the other days of the week. And then, right, I, I had, you know, my, uh, I guess a conversion moment and, and really understood more about the Lord and his love for me and the relationship with him and all that and started praying and reading the Bible, and it started kind of, you know, oozing out into the rest of my life, the way I conducted myself at school, my relationships with my friends. More and more of my life, I started to give over to the Lord and allow Him to show me what to do. There was a phrase I ran into, I imagine a lot of people say it, certainly in my life was made popular or known by Curtis Martin, the founder of Focus. Uh, he says, if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If I don't give him my whole life, what am I even giving him? As I was starting to come to faith and kind of waking up to different things, there's like, oh, I didn't even know he wanted that. I didn't even know God was interested in that. I didn't even know the church had anything to say on this topic. Kind of the stereotypical one that we might think of or see in the culture is like, you know, we got to keep God out of the bedroom. But even if you're like, yeah, I'm in, I, I love the church's teaching on human sexuality, on marital love, all that, a lot of times people don't even know what the church is teaching about money and that it is part of being a disciple of Christ to be a wise and faithful and good steward of everything we've been given, in particular, like our finances. And so that is an area of our life that the Lord, of course, He wants in. He wants the whole thing. No matter how much debt you have, how many bad choices you've made with money, he wants in. Because just like everything else in our life, right? he is the life. He is the resurrection. And he can come in and give us life to the full. And he wants in on your finances. So even if you're listening to this, you've never even thought of that before, that's all right, man. Right? Nobody told you. <laughs> Maybe they didn't know either. Yeah. But I'm telling you now. And so he wants in, he's knocking on the door, he's, he's tapping on your wallet, he wants you to open it up and just let him in there to help you make those better decisions with money. I think that's the first really sincere come to Jesus talk that we've had on the show. Um, and I'm, I love that it happened in the, through the lens of money. Switching gears a little bit, one thing that prompted us to have you on the show is about sort of current and maybe future market volatility and maybe some you know potential concerns about a recession coming up. And maybe it would be good for listeners to hear who are maybe experiencing similar concerns to hear a couple of tips about how to prepare for maybe a bear market or how to prepare for economic hard times. So there's a few things that we would recommend. First, just as Jonathan just described, learning that process of bringing God into your finances. You know, a lot of Catholics think, oh, I give money. So that, that's it, right? That's the extent 
that the Lord wants to be involved here. Nope, he wants to go into every aspect of your finances. No, he's not going to be, you don't need to pray about what toothpaste you're going to buy. You know, just make that decision. But he does want to be there in all of kind of the, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of our financial life. And I think right now, one of the best ways that we could bring him in is by bringing him into the stresses the the fears, the worries, the anxieties that we have around money and asking him to, one, protect our hearts in him. As daughters and sons of God, he has given us everything and he can provide for us even in ways that we might not understand or in ways that we might not see coming. And so this is not just like a, you know, rub the the genie lamp and trust enough and he's going to dump $1,000 on your front porch. But there is a very real reality that we can run to our father and we can say, look, I don't know how I'm going to feed the kids. I'm really worried. What do we need to do? We trust in you. We abandon ourselves to you. Your will be done, not ours. But please help us through whatever this challenge or this obstacle is that we're facing. And really abandoning yourself over the next couple days and weeks, don't be surprised if an idea comes to your mind. You know, the Holy Spirit could, you know, he could give you an idea for something. You know, maybe you sell something you you didn't know you had in the basement. You forgot. Oh, and you'd been meaning to. And he just, he reminded you and you came up with the money you needed. Maybe he's going to help you learn creative ways to stretch what you already have. He will answer the prayer though, and he will grow you through that experience. If you can bring him deeply into that place, that place of vulnerability and maybe even fear, he can still give us peace and joy and consolation, even though our external circumstances might look scary to the world's standards. That's the the beauty of our faith is we don't need our external circumstances to look buttoned up or be perfect in order to experience peace and joy. That's ours no matter what. That can never be underestimated. That is the starting point always, not running off and spinning your wheels and freaking out and just relying on self-action and self-preservation. That's a recipe for disaster to be honest, but it oftentimes for some of us more active and controlling temperaments, that's where we want to go first. But the first place is always to our knees every day, re-surrendering, staying in that place of peace, in that place of trust and surrender, just knowing that our God is the God who parts the Red Sea and he can go ahead and change anything on a dime. I just need to wait for him because he's just around the corner. He won't leave me hanging He's going to provide for me in the ways that I truly need, and I just need to wait for it and stay faithful. So there's that component. But as Catholics, we're always both and, you know, grace and nature. So that doesn't mean we should neglect practical strategies around building good, prudent financial habits to help us steward the money we have. And so that might mean that we start educating ourselves on how to go ahead and live with a budget and make one, how to strategically pay off debt, how to save money. Maybe, maybe I'm overspending on some categories and I need, I need some education around how I could trim things up, or maybe I could meal plan and save money around groceries. Do we need to save for emergencies? I could learn about how to systematically set up those savings and make them easier. I could start learning how to set money aside 
for our future. So one day, if we can't work anymore, we have some savings set aside in investments. So there's combining that grace and that nature is kind of that beautiful sweet spot. So many saints have testified to that reality, right? Pray as if it all depends on God. Work as if it depends on you. Who said that one? A lot of people have, <laughs> have supposedly said Saint that. St. Jose Maria Estragreva <laughs> has his own version, you know, of take your financial struggles to the Lord and trust him completely, but do everything within your means and your powers, and you'll soon understand that financial stressors will cease to exist. Kind of that, that combination is a, is a powerful punch. When we understand the practical things that we could do, with total abandonment to him. The two things right there, when they're combined, boom. That's how you face a bear market. And I know where uh, listeners can find more practical resources on this stuff because your website, walletwin.com, is Catholic-friendly, and you have a lot of stuff on there, including your own podcast, The Catholic Money Show, which we'll have a link to along with the main site. Definitely check that out. Jonathan and Amanda Texera, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Andrew, it's been a pleasure and a blessing. Thank you very much. I have a question for you, Andrew. Yes. How do you feel about about women who might be more successful than their husband? In... Oh, dude. Dude, I don't have a problem with this. I, I And I don't think Jesse does either. I agree. Like, I agree. First of all, in Before Sunset, the second movie, it is established that Celine has a very impressive job and she is doing something real. Like Jesse talks about how great Celine's job is and how she's doing something real out in the world and not she doesn't just have a nothing job like he has. And I don't think he changes his mind at any point. It's just that people like the, bo- the books that he writes. But I, I still think that he thinks that like she has a more important career. I mean, I don't know the details of the work that she does, but it seems like she's very successful. And I would have no problem with that if I were married to somebody who had a similar level of career. Like, that would not be an issue for me, Celine. <laughs> I think where it comes up, it's not so much I object to this on principle. It's like, what sort of complications does this create for our family? And what is our family sacrificing to make this job happen? Mm -hmm. Which I think that's probably a separate consideration because that would be just as much a consideration for my own career as it would be for my hypothetical wife's, right? Yeah. This is probably an area where fatherhood has suffered in this country for the sake of some job. I think you've talked about this multiple times in previous episodes about prioritizing kids over career, no matter who you are. But specifically with respect to fathers, sometimes they can say, well, I got to provide for my family. So I'm going to sacrifice my family's well-being to take a job that is marginally better paying or something like that. Yeah. I have forgotten that I've mentioned it before, but is this a personal bugaboo of mine that I think that the narrative that women saying that they have given up or sacrificed in their careers for their family, like as if men haven't, like I know plenty of dads who decided like not to take the job that required them to travel more so that they could be home or you know like oh i you know didn't take the promotion because it would be too many more hours like men and women have to make these kinds of calculations for their families it just so happens that yes a lot of men are more willing to do that or there are families who are like yep we're it's more important to us to have a lot more actual money than it is to be home more often and to be fair i don't think she's really in it for the money i think it's more to make a difference in the world i mean this has come up throughout these movies right she's kind of got this like weird feminist chip on her shoulder 
she didn't in the first movie and then it developed after that like she oh, was okay. raised feminist and she said why well, well, i don't want to be like this my parents and my dad were telling me to like get a real career and i oh that's right remember and and then like somewhere between the first and the second movie that shifted yes on the one hand i'm very empathetic to what i think she's exemplifying here is that a lot of women want to be valued for their whole person and not just like being a mom Right. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for the fact that, you know, young women are valued for their attractiveness and their, you know, sort of physicality. And like, it ain't so easy after you have babies. And like, that's just reality. Right. And I think that a lot of people like to feel valuable. I mean, everybody does, right? And I think that that is, I don't want to call it the lie of feminism, but I think that that has become a real temptation for a lot of women is that you can feel really valuable by having a job. And it's easy to feel resentful of men who don't have to choose between like feeling good about your job or feeling good about your family because somebody else is there to take care of the family part. But she's clearly over-indexed where it's like, (laughs) I really want to feel important because of this because, you know, to just have my family is somehow like invalidating my talents or something. Yeah. To be fair, I think it's a lie of machismo, too, that Mm. my worth comes from what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Which is not, is definitely a lie of feminism, but it's also not true of men either. And I think that's the challenge of Christians, right? Is that we shouldn't only be one or the other. I think, you know, some of the downsides of the like complementarity is that it can lead people to say that like, oh, well, women should be home and only do this thing. And like men should be the breadwinner and only do that thing. When really like we're meant to center our lives around the family and what should be best there. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one person should only stay home with the kids all day. You know, obviously like we're living in a post-industrial revolution world and like we don't all have family farms. So the like realities of our current world are are different than they were in the past. But, you know, I think it's as like a real call to Christians to like try and find a middle way. But no, in principle, I don't have a problem with my wife making more money than me, having a more interesting career than me, having more podcasts than me. Any of <laughs> those are all on the table. Not a problem. <laughs> You'd be fine with a Celine. I mean, like a no, a, a, a religious Celine, <laughs> <laughs> a virtuous Catholic Celine. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to die on this hill. <laughs> I meant to. I meant to ask you in the second episode and this one also, like circling back around to would you be interested in Jesse now? I don't think I would have been interested in Jesse at any point in time. Yeah. First of all, Ethan Hawke, please, for the love of all things decent, shave that nasty beard. <laughs> second. <laughs> Well, he was mom. right about that one, yeah. Girl, preach. It's not not a good look. I mean, on the one hand, the thing I like most about the Jesse character is that he does seem to really care about his kids. But other than that, he's just, I don't know, he's both a cynic and a romantic in a way that I find distasteful. Like, he's mm. not my type. It turned out to be a real cautionary tale about sentimentalism. Because it shows how much that can sour over the years, Uh, which is kind of hard because like this couple is so endearing for the first two movies Mm -hmm. and then they become this. And I'm assuming at the end here, this this fight that they have among fights that married couples have. This is a relatively bad one, right? It feels bad. 
I feel like you can't ask married couples about this because like it's so personal. They don't want to reveal like how it stack, how they stack up <laughs> against this. <laughs> maybe, you know, behind closed doors, maybe it's as bad or worse for them. I don't know. But gosh, I, I really hope not. And this is kind of what I was trying to get at a little bit earlier. It just seems so clear the the ways in which they don't try to have grace for the other person and every so often you see these little glimmers of them doing it and it sort of it almost makes it understandable why they are still together because like when they're arguing about henry and celine kind of softens and she's like you're a good dad you know this is not your fault like this is a crappy situation and she's empathizing with him and those are the moments where you're like you get it that is the kind of heart that you need to show your spouse but she gets she's clearly like weary of it and that's the kind of like downfall in their relationship at the moment where she's like you are always like this when he leaves and it's like okay first of all saying always is never helpful second of all <laughs> i don't always do anything it's a rough hang like he his son left like give him a break <laughs> his son lives on the other side of the world he's feeling really bad about it so i feel those are the moments where you're like all right celine like you know, give him a give him a little bit of a break. You know, I guess I got to take it back about Jesse because there are many times here where like he clearly has a lot more insight. He's oblivious about her in ways, but he also does have a lot of insight. And he is clear with himself about the fact that like he has made the choice to prioritize being with her. Like it's important to him that they're together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact and he's right that it's like he is there with them in Paris with their family and we are doing it, but it just feels like they're kind of missing each other in terms of the give and take of any relationship where she's like, Oh, why am I here in Greece so that you can hang out with your writers? It's like, well, like he needs some connection too. like, if you get nine months out of the year for him to get three months is like, that's such a terrible thing, but also like you agreed to it. So, you know, to like hold it over the other person, like those are the things that corrode a relationship. But they have, they have these glimmers of like, you guys have some fundamental like desire to make it work, which is a good kernel, but they have a, they they really struggle on the fundamentals of just making it happen. Yeah. You know, coming from me, this criticism, like another disclaimer, like this is somebody who isn't married talking, but so it's easier said than done. You know, it's a whole different thing once you're in it. But the constant fear of being resented by the other person in the future is like a very complicated feeling that can't be resolved easily because neither of them knows how to die to self. Mm. Even when one of them concedes a point of disagreement, the other person who was right is afraid that the person who conceded is going to resent them for it down the road. I was wrong. You made me feel like I was wrong. And that's probably true because the person conceding is only doing so as a matter of like kind of practical external policy. Just let's solve this problem that's immediately before us and not for the sake of seeing that the correct person's viewpoint actually has more merit than theirs. So it's a failure to unite to the other person. And that's why I think as great as it feels, it's not love. It's really painful. I think it's pretty telling that the the first time, and I think the only time, either of them say I love you in the entire trilogy is when he says it while evading the question of whether he cheated on her. Mm. 
That's brutal. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And then suddenly afterwards, he's like railing against monogamy for being stifling as a whole. <laughs> it's, uh, that's really inspiring. <laughs> Although I think it's interesting you say that because I think you're right that like they clearly don't have the right, totally right conception of it. But in that moment, he's also right that like he is making the choice to show up every day. And like that is love. Right. That's like, I have chosen to be here and like stick with you and raise our kids together and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But at the, at the end, when they're sitting at the table at the cafe outside, he's, he says, like, if you think I'm going to keep coming back, he's, he says something to the effect of like, I'm not going to keep coming back if we keep doing this. Is that not, I mean, I don't think that love has to mean that you're like willing to, if the other person doesn't want to play ball, right? Like if they just don't want to work on it ever to at some point say like, this isn't like, we're not going to reconcile. I think he's within his rights to do that because he never gave his consent to be with her for the rest of their lives. Well, I mean, even if you are married, you can, you can be separated. Like you can still be married, but, but he's, he's not being abused though. Is he? I, I don't know. Do we, do we think Jesse's being abused here? They've got like a pretty wild relationship, but it's, <laughs> This is, I mean, I only watched the movie once. I'm not sure I want to watch it again. But (laughs) I'm just saying, like, if it was just a question of an ongoing disagreement and not a question of abuse or, like, if she was cheating on him, keep in mind, he's he's the one who committed adultery, not her, and not a question of abandonment, and he decided to stop showing up, I don't think that's love, and I think that's on the table for him. Like, if you are going to be in a marriage, love causes you to show up day after day for a disagreement that never gets resolved ever i mean i guess it depends on that's a that's a like yes i don't know she's uh she's pretty berating especially when he's the one that did the cheating but that doesn't give you i mean yes he cheated on her but i don't think that gives her license to to berate him every day for the rest of his life no, I agree. She does not know the way, the right way for him to atone. And so she is exercising cruel and unusual punishment, which <laughs> in a constitutional framework is unacceptable, much less a marital <laughs> framework. So there I agree with you. Do we have any thoughts on the dinner table conversation with the other couples? I had a hard time, honestly, listening to it at all because I was like, I wanted to crawl under the table. I, first of all, I should just put it out there. Anytime there's like a really embarrassing scene in a movie, if I'm oh. at home, I will get up and leave the room. Like I cannot, ex- I'm like experiencing it myself. And so I just, this is one of those moments like I wanted to crawl under the table and make it go away so badly because they're like airing it all out. They're like having a fight in front of all these people. We are entering a no cringe zone. Oh, it's so bad. It was so painful. What specifically was making you cringe? It sort of starts off where they're maybe kind of joking, but then it's like takes this turn where like you guys are just straight up having not even an argument. They're just like putting each other down in front of these other people. I was like, this is terrible. And everybody else is also like, awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really tough because this is the first time we see them interact with other couples and they're seeing Mm. these other couples at their best moments. They're getting a totally disproportionate picture of what these other couples are like. 
they're feeling jealousy and inadequacy on top of all the existing like relationship tensions that we already talked about. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because there's, you know, the, the other couples who are there, there's a couple who seems to be kind of their peers who have a relatively good marriage. It seems kind of people who sort of eye rollingly are poking fun at each other, but seem to genuinely like each other. Then there's this young couple who are like madly in love. They just, they've known each other for a year, you know, (laughs) met in some production of a play and then there's the old gentleman whose wife isn't there. Right. His wife isn't there and the old lady is a widow. Right. And they're mistaken for a couple, but they're not a couple. You're right. It's like these kind of interesting, like different stages, but like everybody seems to be in a better relationship than them. Maybe except for the older gentleman who's like, my wife's not here, if you'll notice. <laughs> I was like, okay, so you guys have some weird arrangement yeah. that nobody's going to fully explain. Moving on. I don't think these couples are actually better couples, like on an objective level. I think it's just to give Jesse and Celine the kind of perception that they are. Although I will say, I feel like the Greek couple... I don't like them. I don't like him. He sucks. Oh, go on. <laughs> Stephanos is... A... No, because Stephanos is totally uncomplicated Chad. I want one thing in life and my wife has accepted that I only want the one thing in life. <laughs> I just want sex. And I guess to fix bicycles. It's a simple guy. Well, I I liked them as a couple because they seem to have an understanding of like who they are yeah. and a sort of acceptance in a way that was like, I don't want to call it romantic. There's a sweetness to just the like, they're on the we same know page. who the other person is. Yeah. And, and I think it's telling because later on, I forget who was having this conversation. I think it's also at the dinner table. I think it's Jesse who says, uh, if we were ever going to truly know one another, I think we'd have to get to know ourselves better first. And it seems like that competing couple has that Mm. to some extent that Jesse and Celine don't, which is a great principle, by the way. One does not give what one does not have. Mm -hmm. So that's a great principle. And they just don't exemplify that. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. and I mean, as as like acutely brought up by the fact that Celine is like all over the place about whether or not she wants this job. Mm-hmm. And she she doesn't remember like, well, in the last movie, she went back and forth on the on the reincarnation thing. And then in this movie, she sort of was inconsistent about the pinball game that they played in the first movie. Now, in fairness, that was like 18 years before. So she's entitled to not remember it correctly. But in this movie, she was saying like how she... The night we met, I let him win at pinball because his ego was so insecure. And like, if you go back and watch that scene, she's not letting him win. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) She tries to win. I don't think either of them do a particularly good job at pinball. And then they move on to the next thing and they forget about it. It did not seem like a key part of the relationship that he like needed to win at pinball. It was like, you guys were like doing something while you were talking? Yeah, right. He was talking about like his painful relationship history. And that was the primary focus. Not who's winning a pinball. So yeah, there's a lack of self-knowledge in, you know, in Celine and definitely in Jesse too. Yeah, 100%. They had some funny little things about parenthood that I mm. have recently identified with. This is more just like a little aside, but just the different things talking about like the difference of kind of becoming a parent and talking about the kind of way in which time becomes attached to, you know, things that happen with the kids Oh, yeah, the the time angle, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And her saying like, oh, you know, 
what happened four years ago in the summer and he was like oh you know what you're some parents were here and you know the first kid got the chicken pox and the second kid got the chicken pox and and he got it right yeah and he got it right i mean there's two two kind of interesting things there first was just the fact that like it's so true the way even not with kids i think i remember what year something was because of like what was happening with it I know when I was a kid, my dad would talk about music and he'd be like, oh, that song came out in 1967. I'm like, how do you know that? And I'm like, oh, you know, because you lived through it and you know when that song came out and like what was happening in your life at the time. And so it's when I was, where I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, there's like songs from high school. Where, like every time it comes on, I'm like, mm, middle school dance. Oh, yeah. Love that song. <laughs> And I feel like that, you know, this is kind of true, certain events now that will always be connected to like, oh, that was, you know, the time when Genevieve did this. I feel like you you have different frames of reference. But you're, it was also interesting in the way that like, I think a lot of women assume that the that their husband or dad is like not paying attention to yeah. what's really going on with the kids. It's like, oh, he also was totally dialed into that. But obviously he processes it in a different way. She's like, oh, you got that right. And he's like... Also, my children, I lived through it. <laughs> Although you didn't know the pediatrician's name, so you got that one wrong. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, it's also like that kind of stuff makes sense when you've lived through it. Yeah. I'm always surprised with the people who just like know random facts in history. I'm like, why do you know that? But... <laughs> the theme of time and how fleeting it is, is like the thing in this movie that they talk about a lot when they're not talking about their relationship woes. Mm. Like his new book, the ambitious new book is like this big, long title about a play that's called fleeting the old lady when she's talking about her dead husband is talking about how ephemeral the memories of him are not even the experience of being with him just the memory of him is ephemeral she does something interesting in that little speech where she's talking about remembering her dead husband where she's trying to remember like the contours of his face and his teeth so he doesn't fade away um, which is like losing him all over again and then she says that reality kind of crowds it out and they're ephemeral, like the sunrise or the sunset, which are in the titles of the first two movies. Mm. And I think that that's sort of like, it's a very beautiful reflection on her part. But I think it's also like a threat about Jesse and Celine's relationship. Your relationship was always going to be as ephemeral as the sunrise or the sunset. And it was never going to last. I think that's what Celine's talking about when she's talking about we were on parallel tracks for a while. And now, you know, our paths are heading in opposite directions. You know, at the end, they talk about the time machine thing. Mm, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot going on with that because he gives a similar time machine speech to her at the beginning of the first movie when he's trying to convince her to get off the train when they first meet 18 years ago. Mm, mm -hmm. And he's like, think of yourself in the future. You're married to some guy and it doesn't have the same luster as it once did. And think of, you're going to think about all the guys you could have gotten with. This, in 1994, you've gotten in a time machine from then to now. That's me. I'm one of those guys. Then, so at the end of this movie, at the end of Before Midnight, after all this horrible fight they've had, he says, like, I'm a time traveler, and I've come with a message from your future self. That's me. I'm that guy. It's like a very similar thing. And he's basically trying to convince her, like, you will, with the benefit of perspective at the end of your life, you'll look back on this and see that this is true love. If you want true love, this is it. It isn't perfect, but it's real. And if you can't see it, then you're blind. And that's like the end of his pitch. After that, he's done and it's her choice to accept or reject him. And for some reason, she accepts him after all this, which I thought was fishy. But I think this is where 
this is where we have that other thing that I tell Kara my Catholic conspiracy theory about a movie and she tells me whether or not there's anything to it. <laughs> and it's specifically about the very last thing he said, where he says, if you can't see it, then you're blind. The blind thing, I think, is a conspicuous detail because that chapel that they went to earlier in the movie where they were overtly hostile to it. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, the, going. <laughs> it's the chapel of this uh, saint. It's not St. Lucy who's the patron saint of blindness. It's St. Odelia, who's the patron saint of good eyesight. Mm-hmm. And so when he's saying she's blind at the end, I think there's like some subtextual saintly intercession going on that finally Celine has gets good eyesight back because they're in the place that is under St. Odelia's patronage. And St. Odelia is like working this miracle basically to get Celine back on track. And I think that that is like the sorry state of this relationship that it could only be saved by a miracle. If I'm really reaching that hard to try and salvage this, that shows you how bad it's gotten. I gotta say, this is probably like the least crazy of your Catholic movie conspiracies. This is the most convincing one you've had so far. Yes! <laughs> by far, good friend. By far. <laughs> We got one. That was that was actually pretty good. That that was a nice aha moment. I'll give you that one. That was the one I had the least confidence in. <laughs> <laughs> Saintly intercession aside, I think that I hadn't picked up on the whole like vision parallel, but I think you're totally right that like that is the imagery that they're trying to evoke here for sure. Yeah, that was the one I thought I was I thought I was reaching the most on that one. No, that one uh that was that's a that's a gold star on that. I'm I'm into this idea. <laughs> Right, And I mean, I think it's a nice note to end it all on in that in relationships, there are so many things that we are blind to. And often we are being asked to see ourselves and the other person, if not more clearly, at least with a little bit more compassion. Well, we've had a ton to say about this series. So Carrie, thanks for making this long trip with us. No problem. I thank you for suggesting it. It was well worth the emotional roller coaster. <laughs> As always, thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs> <laughs>